All right. This is Catherine Lambrecht, uh, Chicago Foodways Roundtable. Glad to see you. And our program tonight is, again, the miracle of Zoom. I'm sorry. I love that thing. I So our first speaker is uh, Emily Martin. And I met her vis-a-vis the Oxford Symposium, the virtual Oxford Symposium last summer. And I'm reading through all the different program information. And it's Jane Eddington. I reckon that bell, they read a bell. And I was like, oh, my God, she's she's talking about the, the Chicago Jane Eddington from the Chicago Tribune, like from what, 1900 to 1930? You know, all of us that do research of some kind, we know her, but it's so surprising to meet somebody new, to join the club. And our second presenter is going to be Kimberly Voss, who, again, another miracle of Zoom, because she's in Florida. By the way, Emily's in California. And I met her at the um, Midwestern History Conference. We've known each other for years, but she was talking about Alma Locke. And I says, wow, Alma Locke in Chicago, that's big time. And she was still, you know, you know, doing, she continues to do her research. And I know at least her daughter and some of her friends are here today, which is really cool, terrific. And of course, everybody would love to, you know, if you have new information, we would love to have it shared. So um, I'm going to begin with Emily Martin, who um, just recently went to the West Coast from the East Coast. And uh, she's getting a PhD in food studies or something related to that. You know how these things go. Okay. Well, hi, everybody. Um, My name is Emily Martin. I'm a history PhD student at UC Berkeley, started this year. Um, Really excited to be here to talk a bit about women's food media and the papers of Caroline Maddox-Beard, who wrote under the pen name Jane Eddington as the Chicago Tribune's food writer from 1910 to 1930. I'm going to start by talking a bit about the life of Caroline Maddox before taking a look at some of the letters um, written by Maddox's readers um, that I think really suggest a very interesting and complicated relationship between readers and the food media that they consumed. Um, So I'm going to start by giving a quick introduction to the collection and to the life of Caroline Maddox-Beard, who's a really fascinating and interesting woman who I think has fallen out of the, you know, our understanding of food media in the past just a little bit. So um, Maddox-Beard's originally from Holden, Maine. She went to Wellesley College as a scholarship student, and then she went to the University of Chicago for her master's degree. She served briefly as the Dean of Women at Washburn College before starting at the Chicago Tribune as their, I think, first food columnist. Um, Her educational background wasn't in home economics or cooking. It was in English literature. Um, So in her early years with the paper, the Chicago Tribune actually paid for her to attend cooking schools in Paris, Edinburgh, and Berlin. And then she also traveled in that year widely across Europe where she picked up various cooking styles and techniques. One thing that's really interesting about her collection is her international culinary education was actually really highlighted in the types of recipes she shared, um, featuring foreign foods that were not necessarily in vogue at the time. So her papers include folders of Greek recipes, Turkish recipes, Eastern European dishes, South Asian dishes, not what we would call authentic today, but she was one of the only food writers at the time who was really featuring them at all, which is kind of interesting. 
So as the food writer for the Tribune, which was syndicated across the country, she was responsible for publishing daily recipes and articles on cooking. Every Sunday, she also published sample menus for the week. I just pulled this one because it's one of her Thanksgiving menus. So I thought that was nice and seasonal. Um, And from her decades of publishing recipes, she published a cookbook called The Tribune Cookbook, which I have gotten to see a copy of, and supposedly also a book called Eat, Drink, and Be Merry with Dickens, which I have yet to find, but would be fascinated to see its contents. She also had a really large collection of historic cookbooks and had something of an interest in food history, which she would occasionally write on for the Tribune, which as a food historian, I find very interesting and very satisfyingly meta. Um, Her papers also contain a number of manuscripts for more serious articles, She wrote a biography um, and a novel, neither of which were ever published. Um, So while her more uh, serious, let's say, literary aspirations were never fully realized, she was seen throughout the region as a culinary authority. She was widely invited to, you know, women's clubs to give talks. Um, She was really seen as something of an expert in her subject. So Wellesley's 1938 President's Report Um, which notes the receipt of her papers following her death, describes her as being famous in the country and in Europe for her columns on cookery. Um, So I think her story is really revealing both of the level of success a woman could attain as a culinary expert and the potential limitations on that success, because she never really got traction within academia, which was her first career. Uh, She was also married for several years, also kind of an interesting story. because the letters between her and her ex-husband show that he became reliant on her income, which she already felt was not as high as it should have been. Um, And that caused a lot of stress in their relationship, judging by the letters. Um, So that's also kind of an interesting story within a story. So when her collection was donated to Wellesley, Wellesley didn't actually have an archives or special collections yet. or not a very robust one. And her papers were just kind of put in the literal basement of the library uh, where they were untouched for several decades. We think that at some point in the eighties or nineties, an archivist separated and refoldered her personal correspondence, which were kept in a separate box, but the rest of the 25 box collection appears to have been left untouched. So as an undergraduate at Wellesley starting in 2017, I worked with the archivist to um, pre-process and process the collection. So I spent three years working exclusively with her papers, um, cataloging their contents, refoldering and rehousing them and doing some early digitization work. So I had the opportunity to get to know the collection very well. And also in its own way to get to know like Caroline Maddox Beard very well through all of her school papers, her writings that, you know, were kept. Um, And that's how I stumbled across roughly 200 letters written to Caroline Maddox-Beard by readers of her column. It was actually in an undergraduate class when I was reading another book, not on food history at all, but on fashion history, where I saw a throwaway reference in the footnotes that was just saying, well, we don't have a lot of letters that were written to um, women's magazine or women's newspaper authors. We know they received a ton of them but we just don't have a lot that weren't published. Um, So again, there's been a fair amount of historical research and writing around the topic of reader letters to women's media, especially women's food media. 
So there's a lot of evidence that's been written on about the importance and volume of letters written to the Ladies' Home Journal, which was one of the largest, most important women's magazines of the early 20th century. So I have here just a copy of a notice given to columnists that outlined answering leader, reader letters to their articles as a condition of payment. So this was part of correspondence sent to Christine Frederick, who wrote on housework and housekeeping by Edward Bach. We also know that Edward Bach, who was editor of the magazine, would pose as a reader and send decoy letters to columnists to make sure that they followed through and that their replies were up to par. So these letters definitely existed in huge volumes. Uh, we know they actively shaped the marketing strategy of these publications. But there's also this kind of expressed belief, by some historians at least, that those letters don't exist. We have the published ones, you know, in like agony aunt type columns, but we don't have a lot of the original manuscripts. So historians who have recently tried to get at the content and relationships expressed in these letters have been very reliant on published letters. So having access to this collection, even though it's only about 200 letters and comes from a women's section of a magazine or a newspaper, so different form, different function than a magazine, I think it does give us a lot of insight into what food writing meant to its audience and how the audience would understand and interact with that published work. And I think it's significant and important that this is a story about a food writer, um, not because there's um, not because there's nothing valid about other types of housekeeping or women's writing at the time, but because I think there's something very intimate about people's relationships with food that's really being expressed in these articles. So food is like a really great insight into people's inner lives, which is something historians are always reaching for. Um, so I think food just makes these dynamics really pronounced um, and really interesting to look at. Also because food at this time is becoming increasingly scientific and rigidly defined with the home economics and nutritionist and eugenics movement. Um, so the 20th century, early 20th century is not really thought of as a very imaginative or exciting time for American food, quite the opposite probably. It's really seen as a period of professionalization where scientific legitimacy is beginning to shape how people are thinking about and writing about food. Caroline Maddox-Beard is definitely playing a part in that. A big way that the Chicago Tribune is actively selling her both to advertisers and readers is by playing up her training and expertise and referencing her state-of-the-art test kitchen that they had where she tested all of her recipes before they were published. Um, there's a real emphasis placed on her professionalism, on her education and training, um, and her scientific legitimacy within this field, that she's testing the recipes, that there's you know, a method to this, to her food writing and her, her expertise. So while that's really a part of her public persona though, and it seems that it also shaped how Maddox Beard herself would respond to readers, I don't think it's indicative of how, how readers are interacting with her column. Um, speaking of published letters, Maddox Beard did publish some letters or excerpts of letters she received from readers in her column, though there was not a separate column where she just addressed letters. Um, these letters, none of which I found in the letters I accessed in her collection, generally do conform to a more deferential way of interacting with her. One April 1925 article on baking powder and cakes, which is not the article I've excerpted here, um, she writes that practically all letters which come from one of the cities where my articles are read 
are simply letters of commendation, no request of any sort being made. I can't comment on whether this is true in the aggregate because I only have 200 of likely thousands and thousands of letters. Um, but in the letters I do have, that's not necessarily the case. Um, many letters were not simply letters of praise. People are critical of her sometimes. Other times they are praising her. They're asking for things. Um, I have here an excerpt from a letter where um, somebody is just writing their own thoughts on one of her previous columns. So there is a dialogue going on in the published collection as well. Um, but I think it's kind of interesting to just dive in and look at some of the letters, which I, I've transcribed one, I have a few others. Um, so starting with this letter from Margaret Belknap, which is one of my favorites in the collection, um, there's so much in this very short letter. So she starts with this very informal address, my dear Miss Eddington. She's writing to her pen name, which suggests she doesn't know Caroline Maddox Beard personally, because she doesn't know there is no such person as Jane Eddington. And she's also recognizing, she's like, I begin so informally because I felt so acquainted with you for so long, though they have no personal relationship. She goes on to ask for advice using goose fat, which was acquired after making a Christmas goose following her recipe or New Year's goose rather. Um, and then she makes a recommendation of one of her favorite international cookbooks, which she thought might be a nice addition for Beard's own cookbook library. So in the span of two very short pages, Belknap is establishing a personal connection, um, sharing a story of her own culinary success, asking for advice, and also offering a suggestion for Maddox Beard's own library. This letter is fairly typical of others in the collection, though not all of them are this long, some are longer, some are just saying, here's 10 cents, I would like a copy of your cookbook. Um, but I think it hits at a couple of the key themes in a lot of the letters. They sought um, Maddox Beard's advice and saw her as something of a culinary authority, but she was also something of a confidant or friend. She was part of a broader network of people they could reach out to for assistance in the kitchen. Favorite authors like Maddox Beard were potential sources of advice and companionship. So there's a lot more at play than readers just asking her simple questions or offering effusive praise. Um, this is what a scan of the letter looks like. I wanted to show quickly because I like looking at handwritten letters and I think it adds to the really personal dimension of these artifacts, which, you know, women are writing and sending off to one of their favorite food columnists. And I think that's a very intimate process. Um, another letter that's revealing of similar qualities, but comes from a totally different subset of her audience is from Thomas McManus, an 18 year old boy who discloses to her that his mother passed away several years ago. And as a result of his mother's absence from his life, he says that he looks five years older than I am, which I suppose is due to improper nourishment. He hoped that Maddox Beard as a woman would understand his situation as he looks to her as a mother and hopes she will give him advice on what he should be eating. Um, he's confident she'll provide this advice since as a woman with a mother's heart and understanding, obviously she would be helpful in this regard. Thomas was maybe not her typical reader, but his letter reveals both the complex nature of these audiences and the way that readers projected their own personal situation and desire for personal relationships onto these writers. 
Margaret Belknap saw Maddox Beard as a friend, while Thomas saw her as something of a surrogate mother, but both are placing her in their social circle by sending such intimate and conversational notes. Uh, another letter identified only in her letter as WWR writes, my grandmother descended from Pennsylvania Dutch ancestry, taught me to cook when I was not yet 12 years old. Then came school, then years of work, never at home, months at a time without hearing a tea, tea kettle sing, but recipes have always fascinated me, yours especially. She compares the knowledge she receives from Maddox Beard's columns favorably to the more familial education she received from her own grandmother, Belknap, McManus, and WWR all imagined a more intimate and familiar relationship with Jane Eddington that they actually had. But sharing these thoughts, praises of her work, in their letters were part of a broader construction of the relationship between a reader and author. WWR closes out the letter, not with continued praise of her writing or with any more of her own personal biography, but with a culinary suggestion of her own. Um, dropping half a dozen marshmallows into a pot of warm applesauce as it's being removed from the heat, which she says makes for an ethereal flavor, though I've never heard food described as ethereal, and I'm admittedly not totally sure what that means. Um, but she credits Maddox Beard and her grandmother together with much of her culinary success, but she's not afraid to add her own tried and true recipe suggestion in this piece of correspondence. They helped her become a good cook, but she's also confident in at least some of her cooking skills in their own right. Receiving instruction on cookery from favorite authors doesn't undermine her own achievements or success in the subject. Now, this is my personal favorite letter of the collection. It also comes from a man. I don't know much about him except his name. Um, so again, maybe not her target audience, but he sends her a sketch of an original invention, a fork knife combo called the salad fork that he thought Maddox Beard might have some helpful feedback on as he's trying to get a patent on it. I just find this image so funny because it's just this kind of lopsided sketch of like basically a spork. Like this guy invented the spork in like 1924. Um, so this is just like, again, a really interesting and, and visible way of seeing how people are engaging with this column in not particularly traditional and not particularly expected ways. Um, so I think what we get here is an expression of really like the shared humanity and understanding between Maddox Spear and her readers, which is important because the readers are so often left out of the historic narratives. These women who are writing to Caroline are really laying out their own interests, skills, and passions. I think the fact, the basic fact of their participation in this dialogue, of their emotional investment in this dialogue, undermines the idea that women's food media was mostly formulaic or scientific. These letters are really suggesting that women didn't just interact with Maddox Beard's column in that way. They're bringing their entire self, their own interests, tastes, and background to the food media they consume, which as a food historian and avid like consumer of food media, I know I'm always bringing my own background to what I read and to how I read it. So I think having sources that really highlight that process are really important for historians of women's food writing in this era. So I think this collection makes the imaginative flair of these readers and their sense of personal expression really prominent in a very interesting and exciting way. So that's what I have. And now I will hand it over to Kimberly Voss to talk about Alma Latch. Uh, Alma Latch, just, it's okay. 
Yeah, <laughs> if you I'm, didn't know, you wouldn't know. Yes, yes now I do. <laughs> by, by the way, you forgot, I'm sorry, not to, but you said that sometimes the editor would mail letters just to uh, make sure they really were responded to. Yes. Yeah. He did do that. I have, I have some of the letters he sent where he's like, you responded so well to the decor letter I sent to you, but that's in the, um, yeah. In the ladies home journal, Edward Bach was kind of well-known for that. Oh my God. Such pressure. Yeah, really. You've got to keep them on their toes. He has practiced that. So Kimberly, you're ready. Hi everyone. Um, I uh, have been studying Alma uh, Locke for about two years now, and uh, she's just amazing. And I, I should say that I've been studying um, uh, food editors since, I guess, about 2012. And so I actually learned about her after I wrote my book. And I, I do want to thank the Chicago Historians group for giving me the grant that allowed me to study the food sections. And uh, these women are amazing, but they really don't have any place in journalism history, in food history, frankly, in almost any part of history. And I think it is, again, how we kind of dismiss women's roles and what they do. Um, because when I was studying this, uh, it, it was very hard to get anyone to care. And so I I thank the Chicago Historians Group very much because um, I'm from Milwaukee. And so um, I love the Midwest, but Chicago and Milwaukee have a little bit of a debate uh, in our parts of history. But I do think Chicago is inherently important. Um, I think that uh, Ruth Ellen Church, Alma, um, looking at, you know, the various Milwaukee women. We have to compete sometimes against Southern historians and historians on the coast. And I do think that that's, I hope, the future of a lot of um, journalism uh, and food history. Alma Locke, I don't know how she's been forgotten because she was just amazing. Um, she was both understanding about local food history, but international history. Um, she looked at not just being a food journalism person, uh, but she looked at all of the parts that I think if she was a, a in part of, food journalism today, she'd be on the Food Network, she'd have a magazine, she'd have a cookbook, she'd do all of that. And I think that's the part that we need to look at when we talk about food history, uh, particularly women in food history, because often, often uh, women get overlooked. Um, so one of the favorite things I found early on in my research on Amalok was um, this came from when she was the uh, the food editor of the Chicago Sun-Times, um, where she was writing about, which she writes here, seven candlelight dinners. And the very beginning of that booklet was about how children should help with cooking. And I think that's what um, is the challenge, I think, when we got rid of home, ec home economics, um, 
where children no longer learn how to cook. And that's part of her book and something that, of course, is not part of um, anything today having to do um, with children, food, nutrition. Um, And so what I love about Alma's work is the professional and the personal. So Alma did not have a home ec degree, but I would say that her career represented home economics. Um, She was a mom. Um, She was a home cook. But she also had studied uh, about how to be a professional cook, Uh, in part because her husband uh, exposed her to great things, um, but also her experimentation in things. So the professional and the personal was something that women didn't always get credit for at the time, because the idea was that women could only be home cooks. Uh, and it was men that um, studied to work um, in restaurants um, or in other culinary professions. And so I absolutely love what Alma was able to do in combining those roles. Um, the great thing about Alma is um, I've studied about 100 women at this point, about women, <clears throat> excuse me, in the women's pages, and uh, almost none of them gave their papers anywhere to be able to understand the significance of their work. And that's what I love about Alma. Her work, um, her background, the details of her, her career are at the University of Chicago and their exhibit. And it's so special and so important. And not only is it available at the University of Chicago, but it's available online. So we can see things that aren't available anywhere else. And it just shows how significant she was, how important she was. When I think of Alma, and I've answered this question a few times, Alma is special, but she's also part of the sisterhood of these kinds of women where you could be, you could take a stand when most women couldn't be part of the public sphere. And she did. But she did it in a way, as women um, of her time period, could do such things where it wasn't um, intimidating, wasn't threatening, because women who were part of food mattered. But they didn't have to um, become part of a sense of the workforce that would bother folks. And often, if you look at um, women in the workforce, it, in the middle-class workforce, it was often about librarians, it was about nurses, and it was about teachers. But people didn't pay enough attention, in my opinion, about HOMAC. And again, her degree wasn't in HOMAC, but she represented the HOMAC women. Uh, so I love this part. Uh, of her work that are at Chicago. So um, this is so rare for me. And uh, I would say I'm probably at over 500 women I've looked at. Very rare, very, very rare. Is it to see their actual notes, their writing, their work? Um, in fact, almost none of them had children. Um, so it's it's so happy to know um, that her, her her, her daughter and, and grandson might be here tonight and my silly son is so ex, ex, excited and proud about this. Um, but to look at this 
her work. This doesn't exist in any of the work I've done uh, in 20 years. Um, and I love this idea of the, uh, the child's first cookbook. I have two of her three children's cookbooks. And I think, boy, we could change um, our country's food and nutrition if we talked about this more often, right? Um, and this is something that was a big deal, um, both in cookbooks and um, in newspapers in the 50s and in the 60s, about teaching children to cook and about how nutrition mattered. And we didn't do this far enough. Um, and it's, it, it's not there now. Um, we subscribe to the New York times, um, children's section, which is, uh, in print the last Sunday of the month and they do do food, which is great, but children eat more than that. <laughs> um, Amalak's, uh, French cooking, which I love. Um, and it, it Honestly, it's just, it's a great, you can find it online for not too much money. Um, but one thing that always irks me is this idea that Amalak is the Midwest um, Julia child. And as someone who's also from the Midwest, um, it's fascinating to me that we just gave Julia child, <laughs> who, by the way, is amazing. And I've read her papers too. She shouldn't get the whole country, right? I mean, the Midwest is all of ours. Um, and I think too, not often enough do we give credit to the Midwest. Um, and I love these parts of um, uh, Alma's papers because we, we don't often give enough credit to how newspapers, um, these newspapers, they were largely sold in advertising um, and other public relations by their advertising of the food section. So you see here that uh, almost on the side there is the good food. You see this other um, magazine. I have studied these women. And um, during Thanksgiving, which, of course, as you would imagine, is the biggest food section of the year. The Chicago Tribune, which I just know a little bit more, the Chicago Tribune, they would have 200 pages. The LA Times, a million dollars in food advertising. These women that did all of this, the money they made didn't go back to their sections. It went back to the rest of the newspapers. So the things that they did, they've been overlooked, they've been marginalized, no one cared, but they made a difference. Um, in fact, uh, at the LA Times, um, at Thanksgiving, their million dollar section um, made sure that sports got enough um, advertising for their photography, right, which we don't give any credit to, but that was a thing that they did. Um, Alma, I, I don't mean to talk too long, but Alma, um, she was an entrepreneur. So she created her own almanac. Um, you know, if you think about Rachel Ray or others, um, she did everything. She found a way to take her expertise in food in other places. And that happened consistently, what she did more than others, but others did too. And I, I don't think we give enough women in food business 
that kind of credit. Um, she was a consultant for the pump room. Um, and if you've ever been in Chicago in her time period, um, she came up with great meals, great part, parts of her restaurant, did amazing things. Um, it was special. And I don't think women got the credit for that. Um, they often get overlooked right in that way. And I don't want to finish anything about her without talking about the fact that she was such an entrepreneur with her inventions. Um, so if you look on the far right here, that was her patent um, for creating the curly dog cutting board. And if you've had children, I mean, hot dogs are like it, right? That's a whole thing. Um, and she was just uh, really, truly an innovator, an amazing person with, I mean, if I had to really think about it, she probably had eight careers within food. And these women, um, I think, largely got overlooked in many ways because they were part of um, the women's pages. And in someone who's looked at journalism history for a long time, these women don't matter. You can look at journalism history for 20 plus years and they're not part of anything. And I think it's because newspapers are embarrassed because they didn't pay attention to women's pages, because they marginalized them, because they didn't seem to matter, but they mattered to the readers. And I think one thing that's very special about Alma is that she could write in her own name. And I say that because Ruth Ellen Church, who would have been her colleague at the Chicago Tribune, spent decades not being able to write in her own name. And I mention that because if you're a journalist and you publish your stuff, there's nothing better than seeing your byline in your own name. And that's something that Ruth Ellen Church didn't see for decades. Um, and so I, I'm so happy to talk today. And I, I really hope that we keep talking about women in journalism, um, in food journalism in particular, particularly in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, um, because they're kind of lost by the time we get to the 70s. So thank you. Okay. So um, the plan is sort of, so you we can put questions. We'll have um, Kimberly. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm having a brain fart. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's so embarrassing. Um, we will have the two ladies answer the questions together because sometimes, and I know the, they're, 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 the persons that they're talking about are what, one and a half generations apart, maybe even two generations apart, but there's a lot of overlap. Um, and I know there's also friends and family from Alma Locke. I, I don't feel, I, I guess because I'm in Chicago and I pay attention to what goes on food-wise, I don't feel that she's particularly lost, but, you know, and she only died relatively recently. Um, I'm just starting just with some of the questions that, that have come in. Um, now this is, I kind of, I would say it's question and comment, but this is remarkable. Would the Tribune send a food critic to Europe or anywhere today? Uh, there's somebody in the audience. Do you want to care to comment on that? I don't know if she's online paying attention at the moment. Because Louisa Chu is also here. and She's the dining critic at the moment. Well, one of the two dining critics at the Tribune. But maybe she's not. 
You can unmute Louisa if you wish. Oh, I think I put her on the spot. No, that's okay. Can you hear me okay? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I just replied in the chat. I, I don't, oh. I don't, I don't want to take away from your uh, terrific presenters. And thank you so much. I'm sorry I was joining late. Um, so the question was, if um, would the TRIB send uh, a food critic, a dining critic to Europe these days? Yep. Um, I just replied in the chat, maybe. Um, you know, I mean, if the story merited it, uh, we recently had, um, you know, other journalists from the TRIB uh, travel. I recently um, uh, did a, a short trip in the Midwest, but if the story merited it, it's uh, possible. And, uh, you know, it depends on how things go in the uh, next few months. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so support local journalism. <laughs> Kimberly, I think, has a question for you, Louisa. Um, no, I guess I would respond with, um, yes, support local journalism. Um, but Ruth Ellen Church at the Tribune, she spent um, three weeks on the Tribune's dime traveling through Europe to write about food and wine. It was a different time. I mean, it would be great if we could do it today. But three weeks, no questions asked, you know, for everything that was done. It, it was really different um, when you look at what the women did there. And I can, again, speak more to the Tribune than I can to the Sun-Times. Uh, money was no object. It was a different time. You could do things. You could write about things. Uh, what Ruth Ellen Church did uh, for three full weeks in Europe, um, I, I don't know how you'd repeat that today, but it's fun to read about. Yeah. and. And Caroline was there for over a year. She was writing columns consistently through that time, but she was traveling across Europe for over a year on the Tribune's dime. And I mean, I, I don't have as many of her papers from that era, and I would sort of love to know, but this was in 1912 to 1913, also potentially an interesting time to be traveling through Europe. Um, but yeah, I mean, they just let her do that. and. They then spent the next two decades of her career promoting the fact that she got to do that. So clearly you should read her food columns because who's better educated than a woman who spent, you know, a full year traveling across Europe learning the best in cooking from various cooking schools and then from, you know, local communities as well. And I would also, I would also say that the Tribune, I wrote my book in 2014. I've written several things about Ruth Ellen Church. And no one has ever written about that in the Tribune. And by the way, I wrote for the Tribune a while back. Um, I have written about many women um, who are food editors. And it's no one has ever written about my book who was a male editor, who was, there was a male editor at the time. Never once has a male editor ever written about the women that I wrote about, which is now coming up on nearly a decade. Wow. We have a few comments, by the way, from uh, Carol Haddix, who's a retired Chicago Tribune editor. Uh, if Carol, if you wish to to you know uh, mute your unmute and talk that yourself, that's fine. But I'll read your comments. And she goes response to you know the sending of a correspondent to Europe. She goes no way, but she says though foreign correspondents could 
write great food stories for the Trib. Um, she also pointed out that Ruth Ellen Church was one of the first women to write about wine. Uh, Kimberly, you're on mute. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. Um, in fact, even uh, the New York Times gave Ruth Ellen Church that credit upon her death, um, that she was the first one. And I've been working on that for a bit. And, uh, and that was something that she did when she went to Europe. Uh, and she also was the first, one of the first people to write about um, uh, wine in California. Because, you know, it took a long time for American wine to be anything. <laughs> Um, but Ruth Ellen Church was truly a, a special, special person. And remember, she was Mary Mead for half her career. Mm-hmm. She didn't even have a name, right? Um, and I've written about her papers um, at Iowa State, where she did home ec journalism. Um, and, she, you know, part of, the, of course, the sadness was that she was murdered in her own home. So she didn't have, you know, kind of the after retirement to talk about things. But Ruth Ellen Church um, was great, not just for her food writing. And and she really was amazing because you have to remember that the national food meetings came to Chicago once every three years. So Ruth Ellen Church wrote about that. But yeah, she was the first wine editor. Um, and if you read her stuff, it, it really is teaching people about wine, like that some wine should be cold, some shouldn't. <laughs> like it, it really was something um, at a time period in America. If you think about Mad Men era, people weren't drinking wine. They were so excited to have vodka um, that it really was a, a different time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's a question. I, uh, did either researcher look into the career of Elizabeth Ronell, born 1905, died in 1955, who was the food writer reporter at the Chicago Sun Times? Well, it was Chicago Sun Sun Times and Chicago Tribune in the period of 1942 to 1955. She wrote one of the earliest Chicago restaurant review columns in the Chicago Sun in the early 1940s called Food for Fun. I don't know of her, but that's not surprising because I don't know everything. <laughs> I assume Catherine knew everything. <laughs> no, but if somebody here uh, has a, has some knowledge about her, that would be great. Um, I mean, I I came into this project because I just ended up working on this collection, so my knowledge is pretty hyper specific to um, to Carolina Spirits collection, and then to kind of like what people have written about letters and what people have written about early 20th century food writing. Surprisingly, not a lot. (laughs) Did you envision Emily that you might write a book about Jane Eddington? I have no idea. I don't know what my dissertation will be on. I would, I want to keep working on this project though. I think it's an important project. I think there's so much you can say about it, but I have no idea what direction it's going to take right now. Maybe a book, maybe a dissertation. Maybe not. <laughs> I know we all have, you know what? There's only so many, so much of a time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you have to prioritize. Now somebody, uh, Margot commented, she goes, my great uncle Chalmers Pencoast, Pencoast was paid by the Chicago, 
by a Chicago newspaper to explore American West circa 1910. And he sent articles back to the paper. So he wasn't just exploring Europe. He was exploring this country. And uh, Veronica Hinky, Hink, sorry, said, with so many people cooking at home, it's really sad that these food sections are, we need these food sections, even though we don't really have them. But I think the internet is just so loaded with information. I mean, just YouTube. You don't know a technique? You find that technique on YouTube. You And you see somebody does it one way and somebody else does it another way. Um, I know there's friends and family. Do you want to make any comments related to Alma? Somebody be brave. We're not going to bite. You can unmute yourself. I think I see someone gesturing to the... Oh, I'm sorry. Am I missing? Do you see the... Hi. Ah, this is Sandy Erlinghaus. I'm good. I'm good. Um, well, there are a lot of things I could say, but I think I'll just confine myself to one thing. Um, when you were talking about the issue with pseudonyms, um, maybe not too many people knew that Alma also wrote under the name of Terry Hunter. And Terry Hunter was um, the Chicago Sun-Times roving name, not a real person, who went around to restaurants and tried them out. And when I was in college, I would go with my mother. And she took me to various openings. She took me to Second City, which was earlier. They said, who's going to take a child to Second City? No newspaper one was going to do that. So Terry Hunter was a secret person. And I would go, and then word would get around with the restaurants. She would announce when she left that she was Terry Hunter and she was going to be writing about them. And everybody got much nicer to us than they had been before, not surprisingly. Well, not everyone. Um, and then word would get around that Terry Hunter was really on the lock and that she was traveling with her daughter. So then she'd leave me home and take my father. And she enjoyed playing games with us. So she took me. Sometimes she took me and one of my um, kid friends. Um, she took my father along. She took my father and one of his colleagues. Sometimes she went alone. And nobody ever knew how Terry Hunter was going to show up. So she had fun with her alternate name. Sandy, Thanks. I have a question for you. Yes. Your mom was writing a Chinese cookbook at the end of her yes. life. Yes. Is there any chance that that book will see the light of day? That book is housed at the University of Chicago um, in her special collection. The Do University of Chicago. Published? We were pleased. Well, I don't know. <laughs> and now that, that um, book was part of 300 original boxes of manuscripts and other things that um, my husband, Bill, and I gave to the University of Chicago. And subsequent to that, we've given them a total of about another 50 boxes of material, including most recently um, some that we found when we moved here to Mississippi from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, so all of her original diplomas and awards are there. So I guess what I think of her as being best known for is one of the earliest people to have the um, full diploma for the, from the Cordon Bleu in Paris, hence her interest in writing French cookbooks, which then subsequently spawned multiple directions to her career in Chicago and elsewhere. So for example, her original diploma from the Cordon Bleu is at the University of Chicago. And um, 
I believe it was awarded on the day of my son's birthday. And I think my son is on his call. <laughs> so it's kind of a small world thing. I didn't want to interrupt, but um, Alma's career is very special. And some of the things that she did, um, I think, as I said earlier, she's probably overlooked because she was in the Midwest, but it was very special. Uh, if you look at the things that she did, um, she deserves national recognition. Somehow I think she received that. I'm sorry. That's my viewpoint. Okay. All right. Um, thank you, Sandra. I'm glad you came sure. in tonight. Very glad. Um, well, thank so you. Is, oh, yeah. We're thrilled. Um, Emily, this is a question for you. Uh, Emily, as you noted, Jane Eddington was one of the first to write seriously about Indian food. She, this is from Colleen Sen, who's a quite expert on Indian food. Um, she wrote at least 10 columns about curry, which I think she discovered in the UK, and even recommends making your own curry powder with coriander seeds, cardamom, ginger, and cloves. Where would one buy these exotic spices in those days is problematic, however, but still, you know, quite yeah. ambitious. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. So I, I don't know where she acquired all of her like sources. And I don't have much writing from her that explains why she was so interested, I think, in very like diverse and untold culinary stories. So we can only extrapolate why she was looking for this. But I will say that she took very seriously making recipes accessible. Um, she There are these books in her collection where she cut out all of this information on the price of food, on the price of all of like the stuff she was writing about. These really like unwieldy collections of clippings because she was very attuned to how much food costs, how much different products are costing, any issues in the supply chain. Like those were things she was clearly thinking about because she has these extensive records where she is tracking food prices and she would write about, you know, food prices and kind of food accessibility. So I think there's an interesting kind of interesting story there about she did want to make what she was writing accessible to readers. Like that was clearly important for her. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll also add that I don't, I, one thing that was just so fun when I was going through the collection for the first time is pulling out folders that were labeled like Greek food. And I just did not expect that to see that in a collection from like 1910, 1920. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so there's, there's probably a lot. I know some people have also looked at her collection as kind of an early vegetarian food writing. Yes. yes. Yeah. Lots on vegetarian food. So, um, and was one of the first to do so. So I think people have also referenced her work in those respects, but I have no idea where she sourced those spices from necessarily, but there's, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, Cynthia Clampett, just on the spice aspect, she says she says that she thought it was not that hard to get the spices. They appear throughout cookbooks from the 1850s. Britain was in India in the 1600s, and there was an active spice trade through Salem, Massachusetts, beginning in the 1700s. So, yeah, maybe that. Well, Colleen, she wrote, she goes, that's true in the old days, but not so much, oh, in the 20th century. Oh, okay. When you said 10th century, it was like, wow. 
That's beyond our scope here. Kimberly seems to have um, fallen off. I hope she comes back. Uh, But meanwhile, we'll carry on. Um, Sorry, Emily, you look like you're you and there's there's something I can add that's kind of interesting is also like there is a real discourse kind of happening at this time by other food writers and by like home economics experts that are really trying to turn away from spice heavy dishes that are really turning towards a kind of bland, nutritionally defined sort of like Americana cooking style because there was a lot of anxiety about immigrant foods. Um, Helen Zoe Veit's book, Modern Food, Moral Food, which is like a favorite food history piece of mine, kind of talks a lot about this sort of bipolar impulse in American food, that it's both super interested in kind of new exotic food, but that most of the women who are kind of at the top of like the, the food chain who are the home economics experts and food writers are really trying to make a point of like, we don't want to be talking about immigrant food. We want to be Americanizing. We want that project. So I think that experience collection is also kind of interesting because it suggests that obviously not all food writers were doing that. And there was a real interest in immigrant food ways that she's writing about and sort of talking about. Though again, maybe wouldn't live up to our standards of authenticity today, but I think it's still really interesting. Well, I've, this will be covered more in January. I did a, a comparison contrast between two community cookbooks uh, put together by women's clubs in Highland Park. One was from 1911, the other one from 1925. And I have heard people lecture me on, you know, the blandness of Midwestern food and it's this blanket of white with all these white sauces covering everything. And let me tell you, in the book from 1911 or 1912, whatever, there's a lot of those kinds of sauces and that kind of the field of white type of thing. By 1925, it's not there. There was only like maybe two or three recipes. The other one, more than a dozen. Mm-hmm. So there's also, you know, trends. Yeah. Things that are popular. I mean, like Filipino food right now is very, very popular. But, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you had to talk somebody into giving it a shot. Yeah. So, so yeah. things change. Yes. And things change very quickly in this period. I mean, very fast. This is, I mean, I think such a great era to just study food history in, because I think it's where these ideas are really being formed and like made into like, you know, going from knowledge into like practice So going from ideas about professionalism in the kitchen to the practice of professionalism in the kitchen. And that's kind of like a classic story in food history at this point. Um, There's a a question related to Terry Hunter. So Sandra, I hope you'll, you'll, you'll perhaps chime in. He said, regarding the reviewer, Terry Hunter, I thought that pseudonym was used by a number of restaurant reviewers, not just one specific reviewer. That's right. More information. Is that about right? That's right. And so my mother was Terry Hunter, mainly during the summer times when I was at home. Uh, and, and then some could, other colleagues. She could use me as a decoy. I was a decoy. <laughs> <laughs> I was a teenage decoy. There we go. Okay, so you were in the know about all this. Oh, yes. I, I, I've gone on a few restaurant reviews well, you know, I, it wasn't my job, it was their job. And I remember going to one where the, the, the waitress said, oh, please hold on to your fork for dessert. And I went, oh no, 
this is going to be in the review. And sure enough, it was. I didn't even mention it. I just made a, made a mental note. Uh, now, here's a question. I'm sorry, whatever happened to Kimberly? Maybe she had a, a problem. She goes, both Emily and Kimberly have illustrated how Jane and Emily connected personally with their readers and helped to elevate culture during their day. Not to diss any particular medium, but I was listening yesterday to a radio program that I'll relabel as a few things not very well considered. <laughs> Can't imagine what he's talking about or her. And I'm wondering how we can change the nature of public discourse today to help people open their eyes, adopt higher aspirations, and strive for innovative outcomes. I mean, I don't know. Since the pandemic, I've been cooking every damn day. Yeah, it's it's like it's a big question. I I love food history as like a field. I think food history really allows us to like access like kind of like the intimacy of people's lives in like a really important and meaningful way. I'm kind of a believer, though I'm not sure how much this always holds up, that studying history and studying food history is a really valuable way of building empathy and understanding and really getting into the nuances of people's lives and understanding how people find value and meaning, um, even in like, you know, oppressive circumstances, let's say. Um, so yeah, I think paying attention to those stories and really engaging with them meaningfully and teaching them, talking about them. I, I like to believe that that, you know, helps strive towards innovative outcomes or helps people adopt higher aspirations by recognizing how people have created change in the past and found change in their own life um, and made meaningful impacts on their loved ones and their communities. Like, I think that's like, to me, that's the point of doing history is understanding how people have had really important and meaningful relationships with others that have been transformative for themselves and their communities and understanding that we also, we can do these things too, right? we can engage in these same discourses. Like though that power has never left us. And what a better medium to study that through food, which we're all engaging with on a constant basis, whether we think about it or not, might as well pay closer attention um, and understand all of the potential it has in it. But I think, I think this is also a particularly optimistic, you know, way of thinking about it. But um, there's a reason I'm doing a PhD in history, I guess. <laughs> Yes, you are. Uh, by the way, Sandra, uh, this might be kind of a question. Uh, so as Terry Hunter, sorry, we're back to Terry Hunter. Okay. What we have here is a, a gentleman who's a pizza historian. And so uh, we're being helpful to him. As Terry Hunter, April 1954, sometimes, any ideas who it might have been? It was an important early review of Pizzeria Uno. Uh. I don't uh, even know. No, no, because I did not go with Terry Hunter anywhere until I graduated from high school, and that was in 1960. So, no, okay. I have no idea. So that was somebody else in the in the paper. Somebody else, yeah, right. Uh, and he also did point out because he he was the one that asked about Elizabeth Rennell's. She wrote the first review of the pizzeria at 29 East Ohio Street on December 19, 1943, the pizzeria that eventually was named Pizzeria Uno. So many of the earliest details on Chicago pizzeria history 
would have been lost if the Rennells had not written about them in the in the early 1940s. <sighs> that happens. Uh, so anyway, so your so your interest in all this was because this was like a project. Jane Eddington became your project just out of a total coincidence. Like I needed a work study job and I was a history major and the archives was hiring someone. And I said, yeah, I do food history. And they were like, that's so funny. We have this collection that was given to us in 1938 that we've never processed. It's our oldest unprocessed collection. Do you want to look at it? And I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and it was, it was always fun to work on. Like I always enjoyed it, but I, it, it took me until my junior year to realize how significant the collection was and to realize how much was there that you could say about it. And that, so that sort of like flipped the switch where I was like, oh, we don't have these sources for a lot of other food writers. And we definitely don't have them for food writers from this era. We have, you know, we have more documentation starting in the post-World War II period. So I realized how unique and special everything I had of hers was. And I was like, okay, <laughs> there's a lot to do here. I mean, I'm still interested to see if I can find any similar collections. You know, I think there's a bigger story here that's not just about her, but it's about other food writers, about women's magazines, and about what people were writing to them. But I'm having trouble finding similar collections of letters. So, you know, we'll we'll see how the project develops. And it will really be dependent on you know, how stuff like this has been preserved elsewhere, what kind of archives I have access to. Um, and this is just one part of my interest in food history. I also do a lot of stuff on food and medicine. And that's like, you know, 90 degree, you know, very different project. So. By the way, at least at Kansas State, mm -hmm. the, that's where uh, Paddleford's mm -hmm. um, documents are residing. Yeah. yeah. Just but yeah. I mean, there is a book already written on it, but that doesn't mean there can't be other valuable information and approaches oh, that we're not. Yeah, I at. mean, so much of what I've, you know, spent time doing is just sort of mining the footnotes of what other people have written or, you know, looking, okay, what collections are they using? Where are they? I'm always trying to figure out what happened to all of the ladies home journal letters because uh, an intern wrote an article as they were closing and mentioned that the ladies home journal kept a copy of every single letter that they received. And I'm like, okay, do what happened to those letters after they closed? Where are they? And how far back do they go? Because they received like, you know, in their, in its heyday, like a million letters per year. How many of those have survived, you know? And that's, a, that's, I mean, I've talked to people who run, who ran test kitchens. Mm -hmm. And when that company folded into another one, their their collections and archives went into the garbage. Yeah. And that's like a really likely outcome, which is so sad because there's so much. I mean, there's so much important stuff in these letters. That's so much that really helps us understand, I think, again, ordinary people's lived experiences who are otherwise left out of our historic record. I mean, it's bad enough that people like Caroline Maddox-Beer are left out, but what about all of the people reading her writing? They, you know, they're even further removed from these stories we tell. And I think that's sad because I think they, there are so many important stories in there. So are there any more questions or comments or things that people I, would like I have to a add? question. Sure. 
Um, actually, I have two. Emily, have you seen the Amalot collection at the University of Chicago? I haven't, but I would love to. I mean, okay. <laughs> if you need any help arranging a tour or anything like that, you let me know. Thank you so much. No, I really appreciate that. I'm I'm hoping this summer to continue working on this project. Great. Um, do a little bit more archival research. So yeah. Great. Then my other question is completely different. Um, in my one part of my life, I'm a university professor and I have PhD students myself. Mm-hmm. And but not not in history. <laughs> um, I'm a, I'm a geographer. Okay. Um, but one of the things we have students do is field work or lab work of some mm-hmm. kind that supports the theoretical component of their curriculum. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you did any field work in association with your food history. Like I could imagine studying the evolution of chicken a la king mm-hmm. from who knows when, 1900 through to 1950, and then how maybe it got transformed. Mm-hmm. And so do you actually cook dishes from yeah. these old um, materials that you find and see how they really changed over time yeah. with your taste buds? Well, you do that? I, have, I, I have done that, but in a slightly yes. context. So as an undergraduate, I was also a classics major. So even though I'm a U.S. historian, I love ancient history and I actually got funding to study ancient Roman wild boar recipes and wow. ancient Roman wild boar, um, you know, with like fish sauce and red wine and like roast it, like build a fire, like, and it was just so fun. Like I, I go back and forth. I'm like, I, I don't know if I could ever publish that, but it's like, what a great way to get people to really materially engage with what you're talking about, especially in like an ancient context when I think it's really hard to like get into that sensory world, being able to be like, I'm going to talk about representations of wild boar and Roman satire. While I talk about this, you can enjoy this roasted wild boar I made. Like, it's just, it's just very fun. So I actually love doing stuff like that. I've done it more for my ancient history work because a lot of what I do in US history focuses more on um, kind of like theoretical knowledge about food or like food is like the frame Um, But I don't always go as heavily into like the materiality of it. But when I do ancient history stuff, I am very deep in the materiality of it. So I've gotten to do stuff like that there. So that was one of my favorite projects I've worked on just because like, and now everybody, all of my friends from undergrad know me as like the girl who does wild boar stuff. And I have to explain to them, that's not what my PhD is in. That's not what I really do, but it was a really fun project. That's great. I'll look forward to reading an article you write about, you know, comparing the evolution of cooking and eating wild boar, beef, and whatever. <laughs> yes. Uh, in a different time or some scholarly name. Yeah. Always cool to do the ancient world, too, because it's such a different world. So it's, it's nice to just study history for history's sake instead of, like, especially when you do recent U.S. history, there's lots of, like, political questions that are wrapped up in it. But sometimes when you do ancient wild boar, you're just, like, no, this is actually just about ancient wild boar. Like, that's it. Like, there's nothing deep here. It's just kind of a cool thing to talk about. So, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Since you're in California, you may want to get acquainted with Cannabala because he does that kind of thing quite often, you know, testing out ancient recipes and yeah. seeing what happens. He's up at the... In University Washington. of the Pacific? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I read a bunch of his stuff. He was like part of how I got introduced to food studies as a field. Oh, he'll be thrilled to know. Mm-hmm. Um, Emily, some 17th century foods are being republished. Oh, there's, there's, this, I feel like medieval cooking is actually really coming in vogue. I'm going to like out myself as being like a Gen Z person because on TikTok, there's a lot of popular video creators who make TikTok videos of them making like medieval food recipes or ancient or like, like there's, that's like popular. There's a market for that. There's people who are getting like hundreds of thousands of views of them cooking crazy recipes. There's also some that are, you know, there's one guy who makes like 1950s recipes and he's like, these sound terrible. And then he's shocked that they turn out well. And I'm just like, people were not actually eating garbage. (laughs) Like it's just weird, you know, weird disconnect, but there's, there's people who are talking like, um, we're talking about it, doing it. And then I think really introducing it to my generation, let's say. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or people who are grossed out by jello. And then you, but if you call it aspic, it's been in a cuisine forever. It's funny. It's, um, there's one, it's like a chocolate mayo cake. And this guy who makes these videos, he has kind of like a very funny, like, you know, way that he does and he's like a mayo cake that sounds terrible and I'm sitting here watching this video and I'm kind of frustrated because I'm like mayo is just egg and oil like like it's but you know I think people have such a negative opinion of American food sometimes especially American food from the 20th century that they forget that actually people did also like enjoy eating this stuff. Like, again, it's not coming out of nowhere. Like this is coming out of a specific environment and it's not all bad. I mean, my, my family's from Pittsburgh. So we have lots of family recipes that are just like, you know, we have our jello salads, ham loaf, which sounds terrible, but is delicious. I have friends from Italy and Spain, and I keep trying to get them to try my favorite casserole, and they're just so weirded out by the concept of a casserole, but I'll, I'll get them. <laughs> I, my first encounter with people, well, okay, so Europeans every summer, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, um, I had a lot of European guests, and I began to notice when the slow food trend began, because I had people with lists of foods they weren't going to eat. I show up wherever I'm supposed to go with a list of stuff I want to try. They had, I don't want fizzy drinks. I don't want yellow cheese. I don't want, you know, I don't want fast food to the extent they would take the bread, the hamburger, take it out of the bread and then eat it with alternating bites. But they weren't going to eat a hamburger because that was fast food. And I'm like, I go to your place. I want to try everything. And you have some foods I'm not acquainted with and I'm going to give it a shot. Um, by the way, somebody here is going to go and try the marshmallows with the applesauce. <laughs> I, I've yet to actually try that. I, I probably should maybe for Thanksgiving, maybe that would be like a fun addition. We put marshmallows on sweet potatoes. How different can it be? <laughs> That's so true. And Cynthia said, and there's Max Miller's tasting history on YouTube. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I haven't seen that one. I'm I'm less familiar with the YouTube creators. I am unfortunately very familiar with TikTok at this point. <laughs> um, <laughs> an interesting app, to say the least. Well, I hope you're going to come back and visit us in the future. 
give us updates on your progress. Yeah, no, of course. And if you ever want to hear anything about food and medicine, that's that's my other project right now. I'm working on a project on food mobilization during the AIDS epidemic. Um, so looking at food activism and the nutritional, medical, social, communal dimensions of food that are really intermingled. Food has never stopped being medicine, even though we have modern medicine too. These things continue. That's at least my argument. <laughs> well, then you know what? Then then we'll see you sooner. Whenever you have, whatever you're, whatever you have time to to come together and wish to discuss it. Well, of course, this was really fun, though. So thank you so much for having me. And I don't know what happened to Kimberly, but she was excellent, too. And uh, but we'll meet again. And uh, thank you. And have a good evening, everybody. Have a good one. Bye bye. Thank you so much.